just finished up talking about what a macronutrient is, protein, carbs, and fat. The essential versus non-essential. The idea that we need everything in more specific settings and contexts, but we do need everything. Carbs specifically. Fats have a really important function in a lot of other areas. Protein, obvious reasons. Now we're gonna talk about how much, and really, not just how much, but how we should be thinking about practically applying how much. Because the truth is, there's some things that are catalytic, there are some things that are inhibitive, and all the strategies apply with macronutrients. And there's some, there's general concepts that I think we all need to somewhat agree on in regards to, could potentially have some some negative impacts on us reaching a macronutrient goal. But not only that, when we do reach that macronutrient goal, getting the full amount from our efforts. Because make no bones about it, macronutrients, calories, are the two most important variables, calories being one, macronutrients being two, in regards to changing body composition or adding lean muscle mass. Because if we break it down any other way, supplements, habits, or routines, habits are the things that we repeatedly do, they're all really important, but from a very, very objective, what is true, principle-based thing, that thermodynamics is a fundamental law in nature that we cannot create or destroy energy, we just transfer it from one medium to another, and that breaks up into a subcategory of macronutrients. And that's all macronutrients are. They're a collection of, as we talked about, chemical bonds, individual components between amino acids, fatty acids, or, or glucose, or simple sugars, that form structures in the body. And really what they break down to is a certain amount of calories. Now we know they have different outputs and functions, but we also need to know that they're simply just calories. Right? Proteins and carbs are four calories per gram, fat being nine calories per gram. And then if we need to be in a surplus, how many calories need to be allocated to each one versus if we need to be in a deficit, how many calories need to be allocated to each one? And then we throw into the other end of the equation, right? So if we want to gain weight, you know, we really have two strategies to all this. We take in more calories and we expend less and that may come off as crazy, and I wouldn't recommend stop exercising. You should still strength training because we want to put on lean muscle mass. But it is true, true as sense. You know, we want to have less dense workouts. We want to have very optimal frequency because weight gain is the product of being in a surplus. And if I increase my calories in conjunction with decreasing my caloric expenditure, you will gain weight. You gotta do that over a repeated period of time. Inversely, if I wanted to lose weight, then I need to be in a deficit by decreasing my calories and increasing my energy expenditure. These are the, these are the that's a setup. There's no way around it. There's no way to go, okay, well I just hacked the system by increasing my meal frequency or timing my carbohydrates. That is all theory. And there's some rationale behind that theory, and that's important. But the truth is, is that we can never escape that thermodynamics is a physical law 
and we need to be in a surplus or deficit in order to change our body mass in some meaningful way. Then we have to talk about the macronutrients that break up that deficit or surplus. And certain macronutrients are more aligned with being in a deficit and certain macronutrients are more aligned with being in a surplus. Because the meaning behind that surplus or that deficit is really tied into if I wanted to gain weight or lose weight, if I wanted to add muscle or lose fat. And keeping it very simple. And I think that's the thing that we need to be better at with our clients and athletes is really getting a very, what do you want? To quote the notebook, what do you want? That is something as we start to dive, dissect what a good plan is, and you give me this elaborate nutritional focus, I have to know what the context is. Right? We talked about in our, in our nutrient timing module all the circadian F effect. Regardless of weight gain or weight loss, that we want to eat more energy-yielding foods in periods of the day, that I need to have more energy, energy output. But that is, that is something that as I start to look at, relatively speaking, to whatever else is going on, is kind of, kind of makes the whole point of weight gain and weight loss that much more important. Because when we're really breaking down nutrient timing or macronutrient splits, if we don't have an actual desired outcome, we're really just kind of spinning our wheels. We're moving in circles. We're not really moving net closer to anything. Because what you'll see, the psychology of eating, is as important, if not more important, than the physiology of eating. And if we don't have any relative context as to what we're doing, and we're trying to hold people accountable to a higher standard, relatively speaking, to what they can do on their own, we need to establish that if you have nothing to do it for, you will continue to not do it when it actually gets challenging. Because if I tell you to eat a certain amount of carbs, fats, and protein with a certain amount of calories at certain periods of the day based off a certain level of exercise, without any real desired outcome or specific reason, you will stop as soon as it gets inconvenient. The less the reason, the less inconvenience will deter you from actually following through and executing on a plan. So we have to consider the context in which we're aligning these macronutrients. The goal determines the path. The other thing I really want to get into, because before I talk about protein, carbs, and fats, and the amounts you want to get into, I need to make this association. The quality of those foods matter. Single ingredient or whole foods are really important. And I say that for multiple reasons. One being autoimmunity. I think too often we take for granted just how impactful autoimmune inducing foods are when we're in a surplus or even a deficit. And, and I'm going to go into the surplus thing first and foremost because I think we really underappreciate the amount of impact we're having on people's actual health. And if you go to our lecture with Pat Debate or Debate with or, or Pat. Pat Davidson, 
we went into this and we went into it pretty hard. And, you know, Pat is a really smart guy and really, really intelligent. But I'll tell you this, when we were talking about principles and objectivity and we were talking about what is health and what is not, and he's like, there's no such thing as a, a bad food. That is absolutely untrue. There is actually really bad foods for you. Really bad. And context matters here. Some is worse than others. But to say that there's no bad foods is saying that cigarettes are innocuous. Cigarettes are not going to cause problems. One time, yeah, hermesis effect, very small, very small impact. Multiple times a day, over multiple weeks, over multiple months, over multiple years, mixed with other chronically bad habits, makes it compounded and makes it carcinogenic. We know that. We know that. We absolutely know the consequences of certain things on certain organ tissues or certain tissues in general. And the same thing with certain foods. That we do know that hydrogenated oils are bad. That is unequivocally true. We know high fructose corn syrup in high amounts is bad. And the point being to Pat was, there is absolute truth of saying that there is bad foods for you. And then we can take a whole nother context of people who do have autoimmune induced allergenic responses to foods. If you have leaky gut, if you have dysbiosis, if you have low hydrochloric acid, if you have poor, low populated, low populated density of a probiotic in your gut, the way you break down foods is going to be impacted negatively. You're going to create some sort of autoimmune response. And I did talk firsthand and anecdotally about what my situation was, but I do see this quite a bit. In fact, took exception to that, and what he said was, that's anecdotal. And I was like, it absolutely is true, but it doesn't change the fact that people who do have autoimmune issues, which are more than we actually, we actually give credit to, will have a negative response to a very aggressive macronutrient approach without devoid of any, cal any caloric or quality-based conversation. And this is my opposition to, if it fits your macros, if we lack context of foods that are allergenic or foods that are actually actually really bad for you, we defeat the whole purpose of looking at it from the macronutrient and caloric intake perspective. Because if we don't associate the quality of the foods with the effort it takes to actually count your calories and count your macros, the net positive is going to be lessened, if not actually net negative now especially when we're in a surplus. Everything is amplified when you're in a surplus. So if you're eating an aggressively fit your macros diet in a surplus over a long period of time, and you have an autoimmune response to certain foods, or you have a direct allergy, the impact from that is gonna be net negative. It's hormesis 101, where the now antidote becomes the poison. And there's a couple foods that actually are big triggers. Wheat, soy, dairy. Unequivocally, 
we know that those are autoimmune-inducing foods. And those happen to be a big constitute of high caloric intake for people that really want to fit their macros. You see this quite a bit. Looking at something like wheat, eating lots of breads and pastas. For people who do have some sort of gluten or gliadin type allergy, that is a huge problem. For people who do have a dairy allergy, who are going to eat an abundance of dairy-based proteins like whey or casein, or drinking a lot of milk, are going to have issues. I don't see necessarily, because there's a stigmatism associated with soy, but still the truth is, is when we're breaking down a high calorie diet that we're going to be in this surplus, that we need to take a second to consider that that surplus is coming at a cost. It's impacting our physiology, really quite frankly, in a negative way. We're adjusting this homeostatic set point where we're trying to change our body mass over a period of time by being in a surplus. And that's going to have some downstream effects to all of my, my systems, right? Which we talked about extensively throughout our modules in terms of our cardiovascular, our endocrine, our nervous, our immune. All of those systems are going to be impacted. Remember, everything is working within each other. Duality is a force of nature. That whatever we do for a period of time, we'll need a countermeasure. And if we're in a surplus, the countermeasure might be immune. If, the, if we're in a surplus, the countermeasure might be endocrine. If we're in a surplus, the countermeasure might be cardiovascular. And what we need to establish is that if we have no conversation that quality matters, organic, organic produce, there's certain foods that fit inside the dirty dozen that we don't need to worry about, but truth is, organic produce does matter. Seasonal matters. Locally sourced matters. You can debate me on that, and I'm sure that you, there's a lot of smart people who say, that's a trivial thing. That's going up this, like, pure, this arbitrary pyramid I made that goes into, that's insignificant in terms of what you should be focusing on. That doesn't move the needle objectively. I get it. I fully understand and grasp the concept that we need to make, we need to make the prioritize the biggest thing to have the biggest net impact. But the thing is, which I struggle with, which a lot of these diets don't really go into, is that we are going to be in a surplus if we're trying to gain weight. And if there's no conversation with the quality, we are compounding really big issues. And the net, and the net is going to be negative over time. Trust me, I've worked with thousands of athletes, and I mean thousands, and I'm not exaggerating that. I've worked with thousands of athletes of trying to gain weight. I know firsthand what that impact is if we don't at least have a small conversation about, hey, I get digestive issues when I drink that post-workout whey protein. And that could be from a whole host of things, right? low quality protein it could be a lot of emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners that are going into that sure food dyes and coloring sure artificial sweeteners sure or it could be i simply have an allergy to whey protein 
and I can throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, be tough and you're just being, you're just being soft. You got to do what you got to do because you're in a surplus. But if that person is having dysbiosis or an allergic reaction to that protein, and I keep forcing it down their gullet because it's most fast digesting protein. Same thing with casein. Casein is just, casein's pretty gnarly in terms of most people's reaction to it. It's a shit protein. Like the fact of the matter is that because it's slowly, it, it digests a little bit slower than whey and has this connotation that it's gonna be somewhat superior at certain parts of the day and throwing out the whole notion that it's not this like hyperallergenic like food. Like, very few people can actually tolerate casein well. Okay, sure. Like, I think it's a trivial and stupid argument, to be honest. But either way, the protein or the amino acid quantity in that, compounded with the issue of most people don't have an allergy, don't, can't tolerate it well. But being in a surplus and getting 40 to 60 grams of that before you go to bed, because it slowly breaks down, relatively speaking, away. I just don't think that's good enough, personally. And if I'm having someone reach 200 grams of protein plus a day, and then I'm asking them to really step up their game and try to push themselves, if I get them that close to doing something where they're that motivated to do it, why not push them a little bit further and say, get it from protein sources that are not gonna cause allergies. And the issue being is most proteins detached from fats are gonna have some sort of downstream impact in terms of allergies. We need the slowing down of gastric empathy, which is going to be a big part of the second half of this conversation. That proteins attached from fats in abundance, redundantly, are going to cause some sort of leaky gut. We need the slowing of gastric emptying through fats through the emulsification process. That we release bile and association to fat, fatty acids obtained in the diet. And that slows down the whole process. And what it does, it allows for that concept of breaking down proteins from, from complete proteins to peptides to amino acids through the mastification process or chewing all the way through that bolus that enters your stomach and hydrochloric acid and then pepsin breaking it down and then it, and then allowing for amino acids to enter circulation to increase our amino acid pool. But when incomplete proteins get absorbed into the body's system, that will create some sort of allergenic response. It's usually the issue with gluten. Gluten's very hard to break down. Most, no one has the enzyme glutenase. That's why we eat it in abundance. We start to get incomplete broken down peptides into our system and we develop an allergy to it. And we eat an aggressive amount of it, which gluten's in everything. It's a, it makes it a more of a, a chewy texture, which is very palatable. But you also see it in soaps and shampoos and, and all sorts of stuff that your body is now trying to break down this structure that they're not designed to break down. And we allow for pep, peptides into the blood system and we create an allergenic response. So the surplus thing is really important, but I would actually argue the, the deficit. Every time that we have foods in abundance and we start to really break down macronutrients into, or I'm sorry, we have foods in a deficit, we're gonna be rate limited by our immune system. 
That metabolic syndrome is essentially just an immune response. It's systemic inflammation leading to atherosclerosis or some sort of some sort of blockage of the arteries that is actually going to create either a downstream effect of cardiovascular risk or metabolic risk. To say it simply, we want to lower inflammation. And when every time we eat foods that we're getting an allergenic response to, that's essentially a immune response that's causing inflammation. And when we think about this and we really think about it, when we start to break down foods from what their natural state is, fats attaching protein, carbohydrates in isolation, and really start to break it down so we can count it more readily or easily, and we start to just say, okay, I hit the certain macronutrient number without any conversation about quality, I'll be damned when we get to this output of, man, I'm actually not better off. I'm still holding a lot of fat in certain areas, or I don't feel like I've made any net progress. Yeah, because you ate a lot of inflammatory foods for you and your immune system or you and what you're capable of handling. Because if, if you're at a high body mass, your body is in an inflamed state. And trying to lose weight is really hard if you're eating a lot of foods that are allergenic. The conversation needs to be had of getting more complete foods or more foods in their natural state. And we need to be conscientious off of, okay, there might be some impact on counting your macros and counting your calories. If I'm eating full chicken breast with the skin on and I'm trying to count my fats and protein, it's harder. It's definitely harder. <laughs> it's way harder than eating lean chicken breast under five grams of fat per 30, 30 grams of protein. That's an easier number as opposed to almost like a 20-20. As I start to think about it though, and I look at all of the proposed outcomes of, I want to gain weight, lose weight, increase lean muscle mass, decrease fat mass, it's so easy and tempting just to go straight to the calories and go straight to the macros. And the more those are processed, or we have a more readily defined nutrition label that we can easily count the macros, it makes that process easier, but it doesn't necessarily make it better. Don't confuse simplicity with really good practice. That there is an effect off of just Eating foods that are going to cause some allergenic response. Whole foods, yes, albeit maybe harder to reach a net goal, but way more in line with whatever is the original reason was. And that's the point. Again, context matters. I want to lose weight. I'm in an inflamed state. I'm eating a lot of autoimmune-inducing foods. I'm in a deficit and I'm exercising more, which is also a stressor. Now I have a lot more inflammation. I don't know why I'm not losing weight as much as I want. I should be. Huh, I don't know. I want to gain weight. I constantly have dysbiosis. I'm always full. I'm not really I'm not really interested in eating more weight, more food. I'm having a hard time exercising because I'm always feeling nauseous or sick. I don't sleep well. I wake up, I feel like crap. I sweat through the night. My bowel movements are off. Etc. 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 And these processes become a lot harder to reach this caloric surplus or this caloric deficit or exercise at a higher or lower level in conjunction with whatever my goal is. What is the goal? 
Again, it comes down to how bad do you want it and what are you willing to do for it? And if you want to gain weight or lose weight, and we know we need to be in a surplus or a deficit, we know we need a certain amount of macronutrients, well then, if we're going, willing to go that far and we really want something, don't go the easier route that's going to cause some downstream problems. Go the more direct, harder route. And trust me, over time, people come conditioned to going, okay, that's fine. I can eat plenty of produce and plenty of good quality carbohydrate sources from non-insulin or non-impacting to my autoimmunity. There's plenty of them. Starchy tubers, white rice, gluten-free pasta, things like this are all over the place. Certain things come from a legume-based source can be problematic, which is another conversation. But the point being is there's plenty of really good sources that aren't going to have allergenic responses that are readily available. Let's get into the actual macronutrients. Protein's the simplest. Pick the amount of grams based off of what your body mass is or what your perceived body mass is. So if I want to gain weight, we should be in a surplus above my actual body, or body weight per pound of grams per day. If I want to lose weight, it should be in a deficit. And this is something important, right? Because generally speaking, the median is going to be this one gram per pound of body weight, right? So if I weigh 100 pounds, 100 grams. If I weigh 200 pounds, 200 grams. If I weigh 300 pounds, 300 grams. If I want to be in a weight gain, though, it behooves us to be in a surplus of protein because protein is going to be this really impactful thing to putting on more tissue or more lean muscle mass. Important to know. So setting up that foundation to being in a surplus from amino acid perspective and protein perspective is a really foundational piece. Because remember, we want to have our macronutrients aligned with our goals. And I think it's really intuitive to say, hey, I want to be in a surplus overall of calories because I want to gain weight, I want majority of those calories allocated to protein building foods, like protein. Pretty simple, pretty logical. So maybe going up to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight. And there's a lot of research in this within the module, so dive into that. I want to be in a deficit though, and I want to lose weight, maybe we need to think about protein in a deficit as well. And I'm talking about deficit relative to that one gram per pound, not overall, like you'll see 0.8, 0.8 gram per kilogram, which is a very trivial amount, all the way up to 1.2 from like most national health. But we're not talking about generally, we're talking about athletes or people who really want to change their body mass or body composition. So being in a deficit for a protein perspective is going to be relative to that one gram. So 0.8 gram per pound of body weight is a pretty good place to start. Because what we're looking at is yes, we want to pre preserve lean muscle mass and preserve muscle tissue as much as possible while trying to decrease fat mass. But the net, the net amino acid in terms of trying to gain or lose weight needs to be at a deficit because we need to go through gluconeogenic pathways of utilizing fats and with that comes some sort of usage of, car of proteins within the body. But the truth is, is if we are trying to lose weight and being in somewhat in a deficit across all macronutrients is really important. But start with the middle. Usually one gram per pound of body weight is going to be the biggest ticket for every single person we work with. If we're kind of plateauing, it might mean that we need to increase our protein if we want to gain weight. If we want to lose weight, it might, might mean we need to decrease our protein because we're just, the amino groups that we've developed are really hard to break. But 
going into that, we need to make sure that that has some sort of context, relatively speaking, to the goal, which steps into our next big two macronutrients, which could be fats and carbohydrates. Simply put, fats and carbohydrates traditionally have a pretty inverted relationship. That if I wanted to gain weight, we need to focus more on carbohydrates. If I wanted to lose weight, I need to focus more on fat. Now, before I get into that interrelationship, we need to establish that there is some sort of fat phobia associated, associated in American diets, especially still within the bodybuilding or like body compositional worlds. Fat is a very calorically dense food. Fat is something that we can easily overeat, especially when it's tied into carbohydrates. So having some sort of controls of like, okay, this is the necessary amount of fat we want to eat. These are types of fat we want to eat is really important. Even if we wanted to lose weight, because we're still going to be in a deficit and we still need to associate overall calorie intake with, hey, if we don't have some controls built in, people will typically overeat. But it goes into this other idea of, of these diets that are going to be focused on certain elements of, of macronutrients. And one of the biggest misconceptions of something like a ketogenic diet is not a protein-adapted diet. It's a fat-adapted diet. Ketones come from fatty acids. There's no way around that. And a lot of times when people go a low-carb diet, they eat an abundance of protein, which does have an insulinic effect, by the way, and really don't know or associate, how to associate fat. And they actually might be in a surplus from the amount of foods they're eating. So if they have no association with the calorie content of fat and they're overeating fat, relatively speaking, to overeating protein, and they're trying to be in a net negative, that the nitrogen balance from losing body mass isn't really moving, having some sort of controls built in that. And I think the easiest way to control fat is that you have an equal distribution of saturated, polyunsaturated, and monounsaturated. I think that's the easiest. Because usually what's going to come with is going to be eating foods that are more satiating, and having a little bit more conscientious about the foods that you are eating, right? If we're having an abundance of animal proteins, like, like red meat, chicken, poultry, um, even looking at it from pork or swine or breaking it down to certain fishes, that a lot of that like actual land-based animal that we're eating is going to be associated with a lot of saturated fat. Caveat to that, if they're pasture-raised or well-caught, they typically have a high, higher amount of omega-3s within actual, in their actual skeletal or their muscle tissue. So that might help offset some stuff. But us, traditionally, if we're eating a lot of animal proteins, we're probably getting a lot of saturated fat. The more marbleized that food is, or the more, the more the skin we eat, it's going to be more associated with saturated fat. So we're probably getting an abundance right there. A lot of other types, too, we're eating a lot of produce. That if we cook it, that if we cook it in a saturated fat, like a grass-fed butter, ghee, even coconut oil or palm oil, that's going to help out in terms of bioavailability of certain water-soluble vitamins. So there might be another element there to consider as well. But the way we balance that out is maybe getting fish two to three times a week, especially fatty fish, maybe supplementing a fish oil. Typically, flax is a very expensive way to try to get omega-3s in your diet, but that's another option as well, meaning it's a lot of calories to get a very trace amount of omega-3 fatty acids. 
or a lot of effort, really. Like, who, who really eats flax at a high level? From a fiber content, sure. Now, from a omega-3 context, I struggle with that because I don't necessarily th- see people adhere to that unless they're adding it to a smoothie every day and, and maybe it's getting them what they need. But still doesn't change the fact they should be eating fatty fish two to three times a week or maybe supplementing with a fish oil. And the final one would be monosaturated, eating an abundance of nut seeds and avocados or even having olive oil, not cooked to a high temperature, but having it within like salads and, and low temperature cooking. All that has a really big impact on overall calorie intake, but also the quality intake because you're impacting the controls on that. You're putting in constraints on how you get what you do with those those fats. So fat is important because it doesn't have an insulinic response, meaning that when you eat it, it slows down everything, and then pancreatic enzymes don't create insulin to the same level, which is the, the big the big catalytic step or the big lever we're going to pull if you want to gain weight. Insulin is this powerful, powerful hormone that helps tissues grow. And when we have an abundance of insulin circulating, tissues grow. Hopefully protein tissues, but sometimes fat tissues. And it creates this whole downstream effect of increasing tissue size from storage of those surplus calories or those surplus molecules of energy in the body, specifically in the form of monosaccharides. Glucose is primarily the number one thing. So when we start to store glucose, hopefully within muscle tissue, we need to have a high amount of circulating insulin. Which goes into the other half of this. If I wanted to gain weight, we just tip the scale to more of the carbohydrates. And we also tip it a little bit more to faster glycemic carbohydrates. Typically breaks down faster, creates more insulin, creates more storage of that of those glucose more rapidly, increases muscle tissue more readily, and then we boom, all of a sudden we now have a better outcome. So the point being of all this, and what I really want to get across is we can put certain constraints to make this easier. And great, great ways to get increased carbohydrates as well as getting more higher glycemic carbohydrates are simpler sugars. Maple syrup, bananas, honey. These are all very simple sugars, especially ripened bananas, that are gonna have a net positive impact on insulin. Certain foods, that have, certain carbohydrates that have less insulin drive are gonna be foods associated with higher fiber content which is critical. We could put fiber at this point, probably as the fourth macronutrient in my opinion, but it's traditionally associated with carbohydrates, with starchy tubers, very fibrous dense vegetables. That's gonna have a huge impact on slowing that gastric emptying because we have to chew it more thoroughly, which is positive. And on top of it, we have to go through a lot more digestive energy to break that down, which is also positive. We fall up faster, which is positive. Now, relatively speaking, to gain weight, that's why you want to focus on lower fiber foods that could have a higher glycemic output. But with that being said, is digestion still really important? So still getting plenty of produce from fruits and vegetables. Remember, organic is probably better than non-organic, and that's just being now being realistic about downstream effects of being in a surplus or deficit and what the impact of low quality foods will have, 
but also too from the fiber content of now I have foods that's costing me digestive energy as well as slowing down the process of breaking down foods. Maybe, just maybe to get more from the foods are gonna be more simple. That if I need to get a lot of energy from the foods and it's rapidly being absorbed into my digestive system, I probably want a good digestive system by my digestive system, I probably want a good digestive system in place first and foremost. And having a very probiotic, rich environment in my large intestine or my colon is net beneficial. It really is. Digestive enzymes within the small intestine is net best beneficial from having a higher, higher overall bacterial breakdown within within our gut, that I want to have a lot of really high quality digestive processes set up. Okay, I wanna have that in place. And that's how we look at it. We wanna think proteins are baseline, quality animal proteins. We wanna establish that, okay, I wanna be at one gram per pound until I know differently. Okay, I wanna gain weight, but I'm not really moving the needle. Bump that up 0.2 to 1.2. Then I look at it inverted. If I want to lose weight, then I bop down to 0.8. Still working off this. Whatever the remaining calories are going to be broken down into carbs and fats. If I want to gain weight, I want to have a higher distribution of those calories allocated towards carbohydrates. If I wanted to lose weight, I want to have a higher amount of those remaining calories allocated towards fat. And either way, gain weight or lose weight, I'm going to have an equal distribution of fat between saturated, polyunsaturated, and monounsaturated. And then if I wanted to gain weight, I want to really focus on higher glycemic, low fiber foods that break down quickly. If I wanted to lose weight, I want to focus more of my carbohydrate intake on lower glycemic, high fiber content foods. I want to make sure that I'm taking into account for certain amounts of foods that are going to be overall systemically positive, especially with carbohydrate of low allergenic foods that are gonna have a higher five bar content regardless if I wanna gain weight or lose weight, not necessarily around my workouts, but overall to help with digestive processes and to help with overall health and longevity. The one thing that's absolutely true if we're gonna weigh out why people certainly live longer or not is probably fiber content is gonna be the most important correlate to long-term health. Above all else, as we're trying to tinker with body chemistry and trying to really elaborate, establish some sort of deficit or surplus or whatever else we're trying to do, the fact of the matter is, is that our overall fiber content that we take in within our diet is gonna really have a big net impact over a long period of time. I'm gonna pause there. We've got some case studies we're gonna go into in terms of weight gain, weight loss athlete next week. We're gonna have Will Greenberg on talking about his take on macronutrients, but I want you guys to really think about this for a second and go, there's no shortage of, of diets and macronutrient splits and fit your macro-based approach. I do think there's a massive shortage on talking about quality in conjunction with quantities that is sorely, like grossly underrepresented and really misunderstood. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate just how important our job is relatively speaking of that. And the simplest answer is just focus on whole foods. I know that might sound corny and cliche, but I'll be damned. It's really effective.
It is really effective. And I think that's going to have a huge impact on your bottom line. All right, guys. You guys check out those case studies and then our interview with the strength coach because that's going to add a lot to this overall effect. Appreciate you guys.